Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I have figured out a way to make this podcast ad-free and still earn money doing it. I have an exciting new partnership with Stitcher, and what Stitcher is doing is making all of my new episodes ad-free every week, plus the entire back catalog ad-free, and you get a free month of Stitcher Premium. You can go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code STARBURNS. So, some of you have been writing, you can't get old episodes, that's because Stitcher Premium has exclusive rights to all episodes six older than six months old. So you can still hear anything uh, new that's coming out, anything going back six months. But unfortunately, if you want to go back further than that, you will have to migrate to Stitcher on the upshot. There are no ads with Stitcher Premium, and Stitcher is the best podcast app that there is. Many of you are probably already using Stitcher. Many of you are probably already using Stitcher Premium. So this is wonderful news for you guys. For the rest of you, uh, you know, you got to pay a little extra for that premium service to get things ad-free, just like many other services. I do this with all my Spotify and Pandora and everything else. Uh, going the premium, going the ad-free route is the best way to go, and it is the only way to get the exclusive content from all my past episodes, episodes older than six months, so check that out today. Also, make sure and check out my documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. I know there was some sort of uh, issue that I had nothing to do with um, regarding getting Blu-rays, from Amazon, and apparently they've all arrived now. Sorry for the delay. I have no idea. I still have gotten no answer as to what that delay was. Um, usually Amazon is extremely reliable. But whatever happened, they are now delivered. So apologies to those of you that did have to wait. If you are now checking it out and hopefully enjoying the documentary, Psychonautics Comics Exploration of Psychedelics, Make sure and leave a rating and review that helps me out tremendously. And I'm adding more stand-up science dates all the time. Go to shanemossmauss.com to find out more about that. Hope you enjoy the new Stitcher partnership and enjoy the ad-free content. Only available on Stitcher. Again, use promo code STARBURNS. That's S-T-A-R-B-U-R-N-S. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Associate Professor of Marketing and Psychology at NYU's Stern School of Business and author of Drunk Tank Pink and Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Adam Alter is joining us today. Hi. Thanks Did for I having screw me, Shane. Anything? That was perfect. Oh, it was good. a mouthful, but it was perfect. <laughs> it was. We got it. <laughs> thank you for thank you for joining me. This is uh, I'm very excited. I just finished your book. I, I listened to it on Audible, um, and I I really should get them to sponsor the podcast. I plug them all the time. You should. Um, and it was it was a, a really really fantastic, interesting read. You kind of walk through a lot of. The history of uh, of addiction research, just generally about uh, drug addiction, behavioral addiction, and then draw a lot of parallels with with uh, our modern world that we're living in. Kind of correct? Is that a yeah. is that a fair summary? Uh, first question: Is there any technology that has you uh, hooked at the moment? You dealing with any addictions of your own? Yeah, it's not an exciting response, but email is killing me. Oh yeah. The, the the metaphor people use or the analogy people use is that email is like a series of zombies. You kill them at night. You wake up in the morning and they've reanimated. So you know, you, you if you're an inbox zero guy like I am, I it's very important to me when I go to bed that I've dealt with all my emails, whatever that means. Archived them, removed them, deleted them, responded to them. And then you wake up in the morning and there's a whole new list of them. So that that kills me. 
Yeah, I try to. I try to do the email zero thing, and I do a, a fair amount, a, a, a fairly good job for a little while, and then I'll get on the road. I'll be traveling a lot. A few days will go by where I'm busy and I'm kind of just ignoring emails. And then once once they've piled up a little bit for a few days, I start to panic. And then the way I deal with that is ignoring everything yeah. and then letting them pile up more and more and getting more and more anxious. Yeah. And I, I'm sure there's just lots of people that I never write back when those, it's when those very common. periods of time happen. It, it's, it, I mean, it's how we do a lot of things. It's how we diet, for example. Like there are a lot a lot of people do this thing. It's called the what the hell effect. And what happens is you say, I'm not going to eat a chocolate bar tonight. And then you have a just a nibble of the corner of a chocolate bar. And instead of saying, well, it's just a nibble, you say, well, I've had chocolate. It's all over. And so then you eat a chocolate cake. And it's the same with email. As soon as they get big enough, the pile gets too big and you say, all right, I'm, I'm done. Never, I'm not going to answer any of them. What what got you interested in this in the in the first place? Was it just from your uh, some of your own personal experiences, or or was this yeah. just fields of research that you were involved in? It was a combination of things. It's it draws on some of my research. It draws on a lot of research in in my general field. Um, but I also felt, and I, you know, what psychologists do is they spend a lot of time um, introspecting and saying what. It, what I'm doing here, does that make sense? And is that something weird about me or is that true about everyone? I remember being on a plane and playing a game that my friend had sent to me. I was on the plane flying from New York to LA, which is a long flight. It's a good six hours. And I had all these things I wanted to do on that flight. My, we took off and I flew and six hours later I arrived and I had been playing the game the entire time. And um, I sort of wondered, is that is that just true of this game? Is it a very well-designed game? Is it just true of me? Is there something wrong with me that I can't stop playing? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is almost universal. Uh, and so I wrote a book proposal. I wanted to write a book about it. And I, it, it was funny because this was just before people started paying a huge amount of attention to the role of, say, Facebook in elections and echo chambers and addiction of to, to social media and things like that. And I got a bit of pushback in the beginning. Um, some of the people who had read the proposal said, I don't think anyone cares about this. But hmm. now, fast forward maybe six years and things have changed. People are paying a lot of attention to it. So my timing was unintentionally pretty pretty good. Hmm. Well, in, in terms of social media, I had to take Twitter and Facebook off my phone Yeah. recently. <laughs> I, I'll still allow myself to do it on the computer and I don't it's just not a problem for me when I when I do it on the computer. I sometimes scroll through things and take a look at what other people have written, but I rarely even do that. Um, and I don't post as much as. And for my job, I'm kind of supposed to, yeah. I guess, be writing jokes and stuff like. But it's it's all just like a bunch of half baked premises, and and uh, it just doesn't seem all that worth it for me. But what I've when I stopped when I took it off my phone. I realized that what I was doing, I would go onto Twitter and I would start scrolling through and there'd be like, you know, someone would write a funny joke, there'd be an interesting science post, there'd be some cute animal picture, and I'm like feeling pretty good about this little Twitter se uh, session, but I couldn't stop yeah. until I was angry about something. <laughs> like I needed to, there needed to be like, so what is Trump up to now or something <laughs> like that? I needed to get my my Your fix. My, uh, my fix in of, of <laughs> my outrage fix in, and that's when I was like, this is just a very unhealthy relationship that I have, and I I deleted it from my phone, so I haven't gone completely cold turkey, but I, I've had a healthy relationship with it ever since yeah it's funny isn't it though that we life is so easy now in so many respects everything's right there things are in your pocket on your phone they're so accessible we spend half of our lives trying to exert self-control by making things harder to reach you know for for thousands of years humans complained about having to travel somewhere or go somewhere to get something or how hard it was to afford things and whatever and now so many things are just there all the time that yeah. we, we're now erecting structures that prevent us from accessing them, like removing things from your phone or, you know, everyone's got their little tactic. Like every couple of months, a friend of mine moves all his apps around on his phone so he can't find them. That way he won't spend too long on that same loop of saying, let's look at Twitter, let's look at Instagram, let's look at Facebook. So a big part of it, of managing these kind of addictive tendencies is creating these structures or little you know, architecture moments where you make it harder for yourself to get into those loops in the first place. So we're spending a lot of our time doing this now. Yeah, it is. 
it is that I don't know if the world's getting too easy. I, I don't know if that's the way to frame it. But it's so hard to leave the house these days. And as a comedian, yeah. my livelihood depends on getting people to leave the house right. and take a chance on my show. And it's uh, you know it's just hard. There's there's everything. There's uh, amazing video games and TV shows and food delivery and and you don't even need to go out and see your friends in person anymore cuz you can stay up to date with what they're doing on on social media. Uh how much of a problem in your view is this that that people are starting to isolate themselves more? Is this is this going to be uh, I, I mean is this just the new world we're living in, or is this going to really cause some issues? It's a really good question, and it's one that a lot of researchers are focusing on now. Uh, they're spending a lot of their time trying to understand that, and the the jury's out to some extent. I don't think we know just how grave the consequences will be or if they'll even be grave at all. So if you think about kids who are born today, they're living in very different worlds from those of us who were born 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the question is, when they become teenagers and when they then become adolescents and they go perhaps they go to college perhaps they get a job perhaps they have kids and so on will they look different from every other generation of humans that came before them and there are certain reasons to think that might be the case i mean if if you think about how how humans interacted when they were young for millennia they interacted with people face to face in small groups they got to know those people really well they learned that there was a, a certain safety to that you know they could test things out. They could see if you're a little kid and someone else has a toy, you grab the toy and then they bop you on the head. And that's a good learning moment. If you're behind a screen, you can bully people. You can be bullied. There's no real channel that shows you how other people are responding to you uh, or to the things that you're doing. And so you never hone the skills that for thousands and thousands of years, humans naturally honed over time. So there is a concern that we will look different depending on how much time we spend on screens but again, the data are not there. They're not quite tight enough and strong enough to, to make strong conclusions. But I am certainly concerned. I think it's something we should pay a lot of attention to. The, the easiest test for me in, in, you know, in asking yourself, if you do a little audit of your own life, is to say, what are the, the, first of all, what are the negative things that happen when I spend a lot of time online? Do I feel bad? Do I feel unhappy? Do I get angry? Um, do I feel that my relationships are fraying a little bit? And then the, the other question, the second part of that is, what else could I be doing with that time? For most of us, it's many hours a day. The average for the American adult is four hours, four and a half hours roughly on screens a day. That's just smartphone screens. So if you spent that four and a half hours doing other things, what could change for you? What would be enriched by spending, say, even an hour of that time exercising or doing some other hobby or having a face-to-face conversation or whatever else it may be. So I think those are the questions. What's the direct negative outcome if there is one and what else could I be doing with that time? Well, that's tricky too because you you have this fantasy world of like, here's what I could have done with that time instead. But like, what do you really like? Okay, yeah. that that four hours, like I could, I could learn a new hobby and and get exercise in and do all of the things if it if I could only get away from the TV. But sometimes, even if I'm not in front of the TV or whatever, I'm just like uh, in bed under the covers. Right. <laughs> I think that's really important. I, I'm not puritanical about this. There are people who study this who say, you know, you should be spending every spare minute learning a language or whatever. You know, you, you could do that, but that's unrealistic. It's not how people live and we need to recharge. And actually, at the end of a long day, watching four episodes of a TV show in a row is not the worst thing in the world. It does recharge you. It allows you to just kind of veg. And there's something to be said for that. I certainly do that sometimes. So I think it's important to be a little bit lax about how you judge yourself. And you're right. It's absolutely true that we have these illusions about all the wonderful things we're going to do with our time. Um, now, you don't have to spend all of that time that you aren't spending on screens doing things that are essentially productive in inverted commas. I mean, that, that's okay. But, you know, I think when you're sitting on the couch next to, say, a partner, a loved one, family member, and you've both been staring at the screen for four hours, it's very clear what the counterfactual is, that maybe for half of that, half an hour of that four hours, you could have a conversation and that would enrich your relationship. So there's a middle road to be found here, I think, for most of us who spend hours and hours on screens. But mm-hmm. I agree with you. We have this illusion that we're going to do wonderful, amazing things with our dead time. 
you're right. We'd be in bed doing nothing much of that time. <laughs> I certainly would. Yeah, I I mean, I go back and forth because I sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I'm just too hard on myself about something. Because usually what my pattern is, is I pretty much don't watch television on the road. I, I try to just watch when I'm when I'm home with my girlfriend. It's it's like a way we pass time together. We'll get into it. We'll have a new show that we're watching together, and we don't see each other that much. So it's you know the, this isn't like an everyday thing, um, and it's it's nice in that moment. But then I'll have times like it, it happened very recently, just over the last week or so, where I kind of got burnt out with work and. I was having all these stand-up science shows and listening to your audiobook and others and getting ready for podcasts and doing a million podcasts and my brain was just getting burnt out and my head was just pounding and I, I'm going to just turn that brain off for a while and watch TV. But man, they do a nice job of hooking you, they do, <laughs> hooking don't they? you in. Because <laughs> it was, there's definitely diminishing returns on that recharge. Like maybe a couple hours, right. I think, would have been a recharge for me. But next thing I know, now I'm staying up till four in the morning because I can't turn off this stupid show that i was watching uh i mean it's also the quality of the of the show depends on uh, that plays a difference on how like right now i'm watching true detective i think it's a fantastic series and well acted well scripted everything else and i don't feel as guilty for watching that for whatever reason even though it's the same sort of thing there's the cliffhanger at the end of the episode and it's hooking me in and you know it's getting the hooks in the same maybe even better Mm -hmm. but i don't feel as guilty as when i i was just i wanted to really turn off my brain and i started watching the punisher because i knew it was just going to be some mindless show with like shooting and explosions and whatnot right and uh and that one i felt real bad for like getting (laughs) getting getting sucked into because i didn't feel like it's a show that uh i don't even feel comfortable uh, having conversation because I'm embarrassed yeah. for having, having <laughs> yeah. watched it. It's a good litmus test, actually. <laughs> if the thing that you're doing for four hours at the end of the day is embarrassing to you, yeah. If you're too embarrassed <laughs> to tell people what you've done, then then you shouldn't be right. doing it. Perhaps, yeah. Uh, well, I would like to talk about um, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating. So, I, the, the, I loved the whole book, but there was Thank certainly you. things that I found myself sharing with people uh, in in conversations, and one of the things was the the parallels with how how the binge watching occurs, kind of what Netflix has done to to keep the the episode rolling, so so you have to take an action to stop yeah. the episode, and then you know having having the cliffhanger at the end of each episode and the parallels with that and how um, how addictions take place uh, in the first place. And that, that and, well, let, let's start with that. If you can kind of explain some of the science of what's going on there. And then I have a related section that really, really grabbed my attention that maybe we'll get into after that. Yeah, sure. So I, I think... One of the biggest trends in the last couple of decades in the 21st century and even at the end of the 20th century was um, the systematic removal of barriers to experiencing things. We talked about this with, with respect to your phone and how you have to remove apps or make it harder to access them. The thing that tech companies have done in particular is they become very skilled at removing barriers to continuing experiences that you've started. So the, the example you raised there, Netflix, is a really good one. So in 2013, Netflix uh, introduces this feature called Postplay. And Postplay is the feature that we're all familiar with with now where the default at the end of an episode is that 10 seconds later, the next one begins. So if you're sitting there like a lump and the, the episode ends, you have to actively stand up and hit the stop button or, or move or do something to stop the next episode from playing. That seems like a trivial thing, right? Like when you're done watching, you're done watching. The thing is, at the end of an episode, you probably want to know what's going to happen on the next one because most serial shows have cliffhangers built into them. So you're you're motivated to continue. And usually the whole thing is loaded up at once, ready to go. They're all 13 episodes or 22 episodes waiting there for you. So you sit and you just let the next one play. Now, the difference 
in 2013 was instead of the default being you have to hit the play button for the next episode to begin was the default is you have to hit you you keep watching but you have to hit the stop button to to discontinue so that used to be a barrier to continuing to watch that you'd have to actually say i want to watch another episode you had to declare that by pushing the play button and so um, this is when the term binge viewing became a thing and in fact it was i think it was the merriam webster word of the year in 2013 because this was this is a concept that didn't exist before, but with post-play, it became a thing. And then, of course, YouTube builds in the same thing. So you finish watching one video, you see the, the loading bar, and the next one starts. And and this isn't just true about Netflix. It's true about the bottomlessness of, say, Twitter, as you mentioned before. You scroll, and it just never ends. There are infinite tweets, infinite Instagram posts, infinite Facebook posts. The news feed goes on forever. You never have to hit a button. You just scroll down and it just keeps going. It's like this endless stream of information. And that's really important because humans, like physical objects, we're, we experience inertia. You just keep doing the thing you're doing until something acts on you. Now, sometimes it's the thing inside your head. Like if I'm, if I'm watching Netflix and I notice that the sun has set and risen four times, I'm like, well, I've just wasted 96 hours of my life. I should probably get on with something else. But most of the time, and certainly in the early 20th and mid-20th century, we got these cues externally. You'd read a newspaper, you'd get to the end of it, you'd move on to the next thing. You'd read a magazine, you'd read a book, you'd get to the end of a chapter or an article. You watch a TV show, you get to the end of the show, the, our episode ends and it's a week till the next one comes. So you were constantly shuffled from one thing to the next. Now, you're never really shuffled along because these companies have done their very best to ensure that you aren't, that you sit there and you just keep consuming. There is no bottom. Yeah, it's it's changed the expectations of the viewer as well because I'm I'm an entertainer and I have to produce uh, you right. know a certain amount of content and everything else for people. I have this weekly podcast that I do, but but that's uh, it, you know I think when it has where it's really successful is now I have over 200 episodes. So someone discovering it for the first time right. now has this backlog and can really binge. In the, in the beginning, it's, it's almost hard to get because people just are now in this binging mode where they don't want to wait another week for uh, an episode or they don't want to wait like as a, as a comedian to write a new hour, to have an hour special every year is almost unheard of. There's hardly anyone out there that, like George Carlin did it. Yeah. And like hardly anyone else has ever even tried to do it. But now to, to tell fans like, Hey, you're going to have to wait a year before I release another. They're just like, well, I'm moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Then. And, and every, everyone just wants to just is, is just like more, more, more. And they're, there used to be. Do you ever feel like an old man talking about this back in all, my day? All the time, <laughs> all the time, yeah. <laughs> because I feel like it used to be, you would be so excited for the next week's episode, or and I still feel that something like I'm excited for next week's True Detective episode, for example, and I'm excited for the new season of Game of Thrones. But but now there's this built-in level of like almost irritation. Yeah, like a a season ends and you're like, why can't I get it now? Bet MGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 money line wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA, and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Is this a sign of a growing cultural addiction problem or yeah. is this just are things just different 
now. Think about what it was like, say, in 1950. It's a long time ago, but just think about what it was like to pass the time as a kid in particular. You had to engage yourself in some activity, and you, then you had to find the next thing. And so your threshold for boredom was pretty high because you'd spend a lot of hours between activities. There wasn't much on TV if you even had a TV. You played with the found objects around you. You played catch and you played you know, with baseballs and things like that. And you, you made your own games. If you listen to people describe their childhoods in the middle of the 20th century, there was a lot of improvising. There was a lot of making things up and a lot of downtime as well. A kid born today has no downtime. The, the whole world just kind of visits entertainment upon you. So you have an iPad from a young age, if you're like most kids. You have an iPhone. You have access to Netflix, thousands of kids' TV episodes loaded up and ready to go. You have YouTube and Hulu, and kids don't know how to be bored. And actually, adults today also have unlearned how to be bored. Now, that doesn't sound like the worst thing, right? I mean, being bored sucks. It's not a fun state. But it's actually kind of important to be to know how to be bored, to mm. tolerate it, to get into an elevator for 10 seconds and be okay with that rather than pulling out your phone and saying this is just unbelievably unpleasant. It, it's good to be able to tolerate boredom because it it's in the moments of boredom that you kind of rethink things when you come up with new interesting ideas, when you don't just keep following the same thought paths that you've been following you know, the whole day. And you need those moments of downtime for your brain to do interesting new things. Um, it's also just good to be bored because there will inevitably be times when you have to just sit with your own thoughts. And generations ago, we were really good at doing that and we've become less good at it. So I think that's a big part of it, that this um, this sort of sense of anger, you know, you look at people with um, with Game of Thrones, they're worried that George Martin won't be around to finish the series. Mm -hmm. And they're almost angry that he's taking so long to produce what ultimately for most of them is phenomenal content. Mm -hmm. That's a new phenomenon, this sort of the sense that produces we as consumers can demand from our producers things. And it's because we've learned there is so much out there now that if if a producer isn't producing, we move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have so much to say about all of this. I mean, boy, I don't even know what thing I want to tackle first. One, I boredom is something I've been thinking about. Uh, I had about, let's see, this is a little over a year ago. I was writing and I, I found myself being bored and I just started writing about it and I just started uh, exploring what boredom is and what it means to me and my relationship with it and I realized that so many problems in my life have come from this fear of boredom yeah uh, and I've just gotten myself into so many predicaments of, of just uh, taking too many risks in life and everything else and and, and uh, feeling like I I need to get myself in these crazy situations to be an interesting person because you don't want to be boring and even with um, even with I, I quit drinking a while um, around a year and a half ago even that in terms of like as a comedian uh, you justify yourself to, uh, well if i go out get drunk and do something stupid well i'll have a story to tell right <laughs> on on stage and so i've i've over the last year or so have been exploring my relationship with board and have been trying to be mindful when i'm in an elevator and like not just going to my phone and it really there is some there's a there's a certain appeal to it if you reframe it because if you're bored it, you kind of have a lot of things managed because yeah. you you can't be there's a certain almost I don't know if I want to say wisdom or or there there's a certain security in boredom where you certainly can't be too bored if you're really stressed out. Mm -hmm. So so if you are bored, you must have some things under under control to be yeah. bored in the first place. But even uh, when you're talking about being alone with your thoughts and and I you know, as I was saying, well you might be even uh, even if you aren't um with, with this free time, you might just be in bed not doing anything anyway. And that's what you know, I kind of consider when I'm in a depression or whatever, when I'm just spending a lot of time under the covers. But 
it's different when I'm doing that compared to when I'm when I'm passing time in front of a screen because I do generate new ideas. I do think of new outlooks on life when I am forced to just sit there and and analyze things. Yeah, and uh, so that is I, I I do yeah that is a concern if 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 people aren't just sitting there with their thoughts and and if they're if they're just getting everything they're getting all of their thoughts from television yeah. <laughs> constantly and it, i don't know but but then the other side of it is uh, for me is how much how much of a problem is that because everyone talks about how no one has an attention span anymore and there's these adhd you know diagnoses are going up and there's a million prescriptions going in my opinion probably over really prescribed for pretty serious medication to give a child but um but how much of that is a reality something that we need to worry about or is this just children adapting to a new world where say you're an air traffic controller or something like that and you need your attention on eight different screens at the same time uh, this is that's not a classical view of what an attention span is is it that we might be moving into a world where where our attention span might need to be jumping around and we might need to people People might need to learn how to multitask and, yeah. and be operating on multiple screens at the same time. Yeah. I mean, so multitasking is essentially a myth, uh, this idea that you can do more than one thing at once. What people sometimes get good at is task switching, which is where you're better at handling multiple tasks one at a time, but you do it rapidly enough that it feels like you're multitasking. Mm -hmm. Like you can't simultaneously read two books. You, you can jump between them, and that's switching. Um so, you know, the air traffic control example, I think there's something to be said for managing different situations and different people, depending on the jobs they have or the lives they lead, do need to learn skills that are idiosyncratic to those jobs and lives. And that's totally fine. I think the argument that kids are learning how to cope with today's world better because they spend a huge amount of time on screens doesn't hold much water for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're better prepared to live in this world because you have an iPad at age two. Um, and, you know, one of the big concerns, one of the concerns with the education wealth gap is that, you know, wealthy kids get access to iPads younger than um, kids who are less wealthy. So the schools that wealthy kids go to have iPads and laptops and tech just till the ends of the earth. The schools that don't have as much money don't have access to these same things. So there's a concern there that there's this gap building up. But, you know, people say, surely we should get our kids using these kinds of tech young so they get they become native and they're used to using them. And the, the truth is, I think these things are so well designed. If you give a two-year-old or a four-year-old an iPad for like one minute, they know the basics of the thing. I don't think you need to expose kids to these things for them to be well adapted to live in today's world. Mm. Um, and, and if you think about the, the sort of trends in the world, everything is faster. You're getting more and more stuff visited on your attention and your attention span and what you can pay attention to. And so you have to be able to multitask more quickly or at least task switch more quickly. And so the, the push now is to slow down. And boredom is part of that, I think. Being able to be bored, I think, is part of learning how to actually immerse yourself in just one thing, get the most out of that one thing. And I think that's good for humans. We need to be able to do that. And it's getting harder and harder to do it. One of the rules of thumb that I use is, um, you know, I'm, I've I've written a couple of books and I'm thinking about the third one. And the one question is, how do you know when the idea is well-formed enough to actually write the proposal and sell the book and then start writing it? And the one rule of thumb is spend at least three hours before you actually get down to writing the proposal, being bored and using that bored moment to think about the book or about the idea. And I I'm telling you, within like 30 seconds of being bored, new ideas come to me every single time I'm genuinely bored. Because you're, that's what your your brain does. It just kind of wanders around. You can't wander around if it's constantly bombarded. And as you say, it, being bored is a sign that you have a bit of free space. It's mm -hmm. a luxury. And so we should kind of use that luxury, allow ourselves to be bored before we dive into the next thing we do. Hmm. Well, what about... Uh, what are your thoughts on how th there has been a history of people worrying about 
technology generally just all throughout since since books were around philosophers were mm-hmm. concerned that books were going to ruin our minds right. we were going to outsource our brains into books we wouldn't need to remember anything anymore and and our heads would go empty uh and there was the same concern with TV, which, I mean, it, it looks like people may not have been wrong <laughs> about, about television. Right. It's, it's, it's possibly, but, but certainly the, the level of, of panic, if you look back through history that some people had, um, did not match what, uh, what history showed us, you know, it, yeah. when we look back, is it, do you think it's possible that some of us are getting overly concerned about about some of the technology and and uh, I don't know what it, you know maybe maybe this is the wrong person to ask. No, it's, ask I'm exactly who the, wrote a book about. No, I think that's the kind of question a person who writes this kind of book needs to be asked. Right, yeah. you have to be able to defend your position and explain why you're concerned about this and not not concerned about other things. Otherwise, your idea doesn't hold water. So I I have thoughts about that and I've thought about it a lot. When I first started writing the book, I was like. Is this not just the latest moral panic? It's the new TV or the new pinball machine or the new Nintendo, whatever. You know, people freak out about every new thing. People hate new things. <laughs> the pinball hysteria. Pinball hysteria. It's gonna make it it's gonna make it impossible to focus your eyes and it's gonna destroy your brain. You know, that stuff obviously turned out not to be true. Uh-huh. People had overblown their concerns there. I think there are a few things about this moment in the production of tech and the evolution of tech that um, that warrant our concern, or at least warrant attention. Even if we're not going to say the world's ending, we're all screwed. I think there are certain things that we should be paying attention to. The first thing is that I think we have a unique degree of, not quite control, but influence here. That if if the population, as it has done in the last few years, starts to demand better things from the people who produce our tech, the tech will get better. And we're demanding that of Facebook now, and it's changing the way Facebook is doing certain things. It's still very early days. But if we just sit back and let tech producers give us exactly what they want to give us, the only thing that will drive them is attention. They want your attention. They want your time. And essentially, that then leads to your money. And that's the most important thing. And if that's all that's driving the creation of tech products, that's a bad thing. So I think there's some sort of pragmatic element to this this drive to, to focus on tech. But as far as the moral panic goes, the other things that make this moment different are, first of all, the rate of evolution of how we interact with screens is so far, so so much more rapid and intense than any kind of evolution of interaction we've had with any other product before. You know, video games are still video games, essentially. Um, the, the basic kind, the kind like pinball. They haven't changed that much. But if you look at what Facebook is 15 years later, we just had the 15-year anniversary. It is a completely different beast, and it's now its evolution with each new step is towards becoming much more difficult to resist. And actually, that's exactly what it's done. If you look at how much time we spend with each new product tweak, with the introduction of the like button, the bottomless news feed, echo chambers that are driven by algorithms, we spend more and more time. So I think that's a concern. The other thing is, um, when you think about books, for example, or pinball machines, the people creating that content mostly are trying to create something that is, in some true sense, good. Like they think you'll enjoy it. It's it's well created. If it's a good product, if it's a good book, it'll engage you. But they're not weaponizing it. They're not. Tr- there's nothing that you can do when you write a book to weaponize the process of writing the book. Really, in the same way as you can with a screen. There is a toolbox of things that psychologists, and I'm one of them, understand. Where if someone comes to me and says we're creating a game or an app or a platform and we want to make sure that people spend every marginal minute of free time they have on that game or that app or that product, can you help us? I could say, yes, here is a list of 10 things, bake them into your product, and versus a product that doesn't have those 10 things, your product will be 25 times harder to resist. Hmm. So you can weaponize these screens in a way you could never do in the same way with pinball machines and basic early video games, books. And I think since there are thousands of engineers now who know this stuff, they understand it, most of what we're consuming, at least part of what we're consuming, is driven by this, this building in of these hooks that then make those products hard to resist. So I think it's worth it's worth our attending to and paying attention to and trying to backward engineer so we can understand it. And I'll just finish by saying one thing yeah. about that. Um, Sean Parker, one of the early investors in Facebook, uh, said something very interesting. And, and actually that, that what he said helped me answer this question about why this is different. Um, for a long time when I'd spoke about this, I'd have to begin by convincing people this was 
you know, this reflected that tech companies were trying to hook you. It wasn't just that they were making great products. It's that they were actively trying to get every spare minute of your time. And Sean Parker in an interview in November 2017 said, we feel bad. Uh, we created these products at Facebook in the early days, and now I feel bad. I worried about your kids then, and um, I especially worry about them now. We have no idea what we're doing to the brains of kids. Um, I, I worry because um, really the only thing we cared about was was maximizing how long you spent on the screen. It was all about hacking your attention, and we were agnostic about your well-being. And as time has passed, we realized that we're basically with billions of people, we're changing how you spend your time probably for the worse. And he was very open about that. And that was evidence that these companies do not care about our well-being. So we have to care about it for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, uh, man, I feel like I could talk about this stuff all day long. What, um, I'm indecisive about which direction I want to go because there's there's um, uh, attention switching in my, in my <laughs> no head right now. Uh, what are some of these uh, some of these tricks that that people are using so people can look out? Because I, I think a lot of I think most people these days are are downloading a a game to pass the time on their phone or whatever, and and uh, kind of not realizing some of these more nefarious techniques that that companies are using to keep them uh, yeah. addicted. The the most obvious one I think is what makes social media now so much like gambling is the the feedback element. So on screens now most of the things we do have feedback built into them and that wasn't always true. The early generations of Facebook in its first couple of years involved just learning what your friends were up to. It's like a traditional Facebook from the 80s or 90s where it's a list of people's likes, hobbies, where they live, what job they have. And you'd go and you'd check and occasionally they'd update it. They'd say, hey, I've moved jobs or whatever. But there was no real hook in that. In, I think it was 2006, uh, Facebook introduces the like button. I'm not 100% sure which year it was. I think it was 06. And that completely revolutionizes the way you interact with the platform because you're constantly getting feedback for everything you do. Suddenly there's an incentive to changing things on your page, whether it then later on becomes adding photos or sharing status updates or whatever it may be, the fact that suddenly all these people who who follow you or are your friends can tell you what they think of that, humans are endlessly fascinated by what other people think about them. It's this sort of infinitely renewable currency. We never get enough of it. Every single day, humans wake up and wonder what other people think about them. And and it varies. Some people care more about that than others, but it's it's motivating. And so to have that built in, that feedback loop, that feedback engine, it's like every time you post something on Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, the responses you get are like the wins you get when you're at a slot machine and you pull the handle. And sometimes you get 10 likes. Sometimes you get no likes. Sometimes thousands of people like what you've just said. That is like a drug. It's very hard to resist. And it is built in systematically and purposely into pretty much everything we do online. One of the reasons why Instagram became so successful where early versions of these kinds of sharing, photo sharing sites, there was one, an app called Hipstamatic, which came out about almost a year before Instagram. Most people don't know much about Hipstamatic anymore. Its peak user base when it was at its most successful was 5 million. Instagram, which came around a year later, has now over a billion users. Now, the difference between them is in both cases, you took photos, you applied filters that made the photos look better. But with Hipstamatic, you had to share those photos on Facebook. With the Instagram founders, they said, you know what? People are going to get bored of taking photos. It's going to be like those old slides you took of vacations and you never shared. But if we have people taking these photos and they have to share them with the people who follow them instantly as part of a native social network, they'll get feedback and they'll find that really interesting. So now it's like a decade later and we are absolutely hooked on Instagram. It's worth tens of billions of dollars and it's all through this feedback loop. And so I think the biggest tool is this this uh, sort of variable, random, reinforcing reward feedback. We don't know when it's going to come or what it's going to be like, but it hooks us. <laughs> it's funny because as you were saying that, I was like, oh, we should get a picture for Instagram. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. As, as, you're, as you're warning me about the dangers of Instagram, I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I should post on Instagram right now. Why... Why does, I, I mean, you sort of answered this a little bit already, um, and 
uh, or or teased this idea of uh, intermittent rewards, which I, I would love for you to talk about. I think is is so interesting um, because I want to ask why are we hooked to things that often make us so miserable? It's one thing to sit and watch a show and be like, this show is great. You want to watch another episode? It's another to be on episode 10 of The Punisher and be like, what am I watching here? Yeah. And I'm still watching it. Why? Why Why are we addicted to things that, I mean, a lot of, a lot of us, uh, uh, social media is a great way to keep up with friends and, and then uh, for... For others of us, like comedians, for example, we are desperate for whatever retweets or likes or whatever, and a lot of the times, it's never meeting our our expectations of what we hope to. Our our number of followers are are never enough, or we're never getting the responses that we'd like, and uh, and it's especially compared to being on stage and making a room full of people laugh. Right. It's so unsatisfying mm-hmm. uh, compared to the, the real-life version of yeah. comedy. Yeah, so one of the most profound things I learned when I was researching the book was I had that same question. You know, I, I have such a weird relationship with Facebook. I hate it on, on the one hand, but I use it on the other. What's wrong with me? Why do I do that? And there is researchers who talk about the difference between wanting and liking and how important that difference is, especially for driving addictions. So if you think about wanting and liking, much of the time, especially when you first encounter an experience, you, you want and like that thing. So when people describe trying a drug for the first time, they say, that was amazing. I want to do that again. And I like that. And when, they, when you start dating someone in the beginning, if it's a you know, half-functional relationship, you're like, I really like this person. I want to be with them. But what tends to happen over time, a lot of the time, is liking is kind of fragile. So if you, if you take a drug enough, it starts to mess with your life. It undoes your well-being. And so you stop liking the drug. There are a lot of people who are hooked to dr- on drugs that they don't want to take. And they say things like, I hate this drug. It's ruining my life, but I really want it. And I'm just going to keep taking it. And liking for, for all its fragility just kind of dies away. And what you have left is this intense wanting, this craving, this need that is not matched by positive emotion, positive feeling. And that's true about how we use things like Facebook and Instagram. And I imagine how comedians interact with social media. Like on the one hand, when you first started doing it, it was a rush. It was fun. You could share ideas with people. On the other hand, it's become now this thing where you just have to do it. You really want to post because it's important for you, but you don't like it. Um, it's the same as a destructive relationship with a per- another person, right? It's those relationships where you're like, this person is clearly very bad for me, but I really want to spend every minute with them. It's mm. that destructive kind of addictive loop that comes in. And so that distinction between one- wanting and liking, I think, is really important here. And wanting is robust. Once you have it for something, it tends not to die away very fast, even as liking dies away. And I think that explains a lot of this this weird tendency for people to keep doing things that they don't actually like doing. It's mm. like built into us. Hmm. So I wanted to ask you about slot machines because I thought that was fascinating. I'm not sure we have time. So okay. I'm just going to tease that for the listener because everyone should go out and get this book. <laughs> um, because first of all, this is... I. I I, I, we talk a lot about it, about a number of very important things on on this podcast, but this is something that every single person on earth is going to have to spend some time thinking about and making some choices about, and especially parents, probably in my view, have, mm-hmm. should should really be thinking about this this stuff. A couple things. What, what's the advice for parents from from your view right now? I mean. It seems near impossible to. Uh, I mean, it, it, do you do you move to a farm and pretend <laughs> like TVs are a thing that don't exist? It seems near impossible to to create an environment that is uh, that is void of screens. How do you how do you teach responsible use? What do you do? Yeah, I think that's a really good term, though, responsible use, because this idea of complete abstinence just doesn't work in today's world. You can't you can't push kids into a position where they absolutely don't have any exposure to screens. And I, I wouldn't I would argue that's not desirable. There are so many kids today who use 
every form of social media that if your kid is the one kid that doesn't, there's a level of ostracism that comes from that that I think is much more harmful than the actual screen. So, you know, a lot mm. of people talk about how the most important thing that screens are doing is destroying our social lives. I'll tell you what else destroys your social life is telling a kid you can't do what every other kid's doing. That's right. really, that's hard to do. And so, so there's got to be a middle ground. For me, the middle ground is, it's um, first of all, with little kids being slow to introduce screens. So I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. My two-year-old's almost three. And um, with my two-year-old, um, we, we adopted the rules or the guidelines set forth by the American Association of Pediatrics. So he was 18 months old before he saw a screen, any screen. What he saw was he watched a bit of Sesame Street at that point. And now he watches a bit of TV, but we're very mindful about what kind of TV and how much. So we try to restrict it to an hour a day on weekends, for example. Sometimes we don't succeed, but we try. Um, we sit with him when he's watching. We never just leave him. It's not like a babysitter. We actually talk about what we're watching. We engage with it. We bring it back to the real world as much as we can. Another really important thing is to make sure that the content is not high speed. It's not like an episode of SpongeBob when things are bouncing around. And you, The reason you want to keep the content slower is because you adapt to the fastest things around you and you demand that level of engagement and speed from everything. It's like being in New York City. First time I came to New York, I thought everything was moving at such a high pace. I found it completely overwhelming. And when I moved here and actually lived here, it took me about three months and I was like, this is the right pace for the world to move at. And everywhere else felt slow and plodding and every other city, including my hometown, Sydney, just felt really slow in comparison. Kids are the same. If you want them to read and have conversations, don't show them screens that bring everything at a million miles an hour because the reading and having a conversation will feel slow and boring. So that's key. Um, I, I think the best thing you can do with older kids, with teens, is to discuss balance, the importance of balance. It's like we can't always eat candy all the time. The same applies to the way we spend our time. We only have so many hours of the day when we're not sleeping and when we're not at school. And, you know, th those are the discretionary hours we have when we can do lots of different things with them. And um, I think you could certainly, instead of saying never use screens, never use social media, it could be like, here are the hours of the day when we do not use screens. And it could be the hour and a half before bed since screens make it harder to fall asleep, which we know from research. Um, it could be the time, you know, dinner tables are a great example of this. There should be a rule at every dinner table, I think, that for that half an hour to an hour a day, no matter what context it's in, for dinner, for every single person, that should be screen-free. That's, if you're alone, read a book, have a conversation, read a magazine, have a conversation if someone else is there. You can read a magazine if you're alone. Um, that should be time without screens, just, just that time every day because we eat dinner every day. We could carve out that moment every day. And it's also an important thing to do is to set this boundary for kids so they, they experience that as well. They see that there is a certain point in every day that is screen-free. Um, and then the other thing you could do is you could say, what are the things we want to be able to do in the day? And for me, the, th the important things are at least a few times a week, exercise, having face-to-face -face conversations. So maybe do those things first, and then what time is left over is the screen time. And then you develop habits around that. And it tends to work for most families pretty well. It is. It's hard to do the more difficult <laughs> things. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's... it's uh, watching TV is just so much easier than reading a book. I, I think... Uh, I have a lot of, uh, you know, adult friends that I try to encourage and be like, hey, I just read this super interesting book that you should check out. And and uh, it's it's just hot when people aren't in the habit of it. It's, yeah. Reading a book when you haven't done it in a while, it's just like, this is a hard thing to do. And it feels, like you said, too slow. I guess you'd say, yeah. some people would say boring. But I think that's really instructive, right? The, the idea that we now look at reading books as this hardship in the late 19th into the 20th century, people used to talk about reading books as the way we talk about watching TV. It was like, your brain's going to rot. It's terrible for you. Why are you wasting all that time reading books? It's There's nothing inherent about watching TV or reading books that's easy or hard for us. Like the Reading is actually automatic. If I write something on a screen, you're going to read it without even trying. It's mm -hmm. actually not a hard thing for humans to do once we know how to read. Um, it comes to us instantly. So, you know, they're obviously processing the information, some things are harder to read than others, but it's really just where we are as a species and, and as a society that we've now got so used to having all this entertainment brought to us that we've become blobs. And if you fast forward, uh, if you've seen the movie Wally, 
Um, you know these people, these blobs that are floating in space that never have to move. They all, their bones basically turn to jelly. They All their entertainment is brought to them visually through screens. They don't do any exercise whatsoever. I mean, that's that's the sort of next or several steps down the road. And for those people, the idea of even just watching TV might be too much of a hardship. I think we all have some power over our own you know, responses to different media. We should probably occasionally just push a little bit through that and say, hey, reading a book's harder. I'm going to do it for half an hour a day. It's mm-hmm. going to be good for me. Is there anything from all of this uh, kind of addiction research that that we can uh, that we can use for our own good? What about what about like these Fitbits and that sort of thing? <laughs> is is there is there any of this technology that we can use to better ourselves? Yeah, I would argue that for almost every form of technology, there is a, a happy medium that doesn't involve abstinence. It involves actually using the thing a little bit. Like if we could all use Facebook twenty minutes a day, I think Facebook would be good. I think if we all used Instagram five minutes a day, that'd be great. We'd have fun looking at five minutes worth of photos and then we'd get on with our lives. Fitbits are the same. Um, for most Americans, I think um, we we could exercise more than we do. And given that, if a Fitbit gets you off the couch and exercising, that's probably a good thing. It does some things that aren't good though. Um, it pushes certain people to exercise so much that they sustain injuries because they're so driven to walk a certain number of steps or do a certain amount of activity. But that's that's not everyone, obviously. That's a small part of the population. I'm at no risk of that. You're at no risk, yeah. I, most people aren't, that's true. Um, but for me, one of the things that a Fitbit or a device like that does is it sort of changes what it means to exercise from being an internal focused thing where you think about what it does for your body, how you feel, you, it's, it's known as interoception, where you pay attention to your own body. And it's actually quite good to be able to do that. It's part of mindfulness and meditation and healthy exercise. What ends up happening is all your attention goes to this little device on your wrist. All you care about is the number of steps it's, it's listing there for you. And it changes the way we think about the process of doing exercise. And it makes it completely externally focused which has been shown to be not very good for you. You end up going working out through injuries. Um, you, you just don't learn how your own body responds to physical activity. And that's part of the beauty of doing exercise regularly is that you get better at that. Hmm. How do you get the ball rolling? How do you, how do you start from nowhere? And uh, as I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm in a slump right now. Right. I, I was exercising regularly. Then I, I got on the road. It's harder to. I'm into rock climbing, and then and uh, and then I was, you know, I was, I was using some running apps and stuff. And then the the bad weather hit, and then I've been. Uh, I haven't had enough time to. The rock gym takes a few hours, so I don't really. I haven't had the time to do it. Yeah. And uh, how do you how do you start from uh, from zero? Yeah, there are so many constraints, right? I mean, the weather's been bad in much of the US lately, and so that prevents you from doing certain things outside. <sighs> Look, there is no magic magic way of dealing with this stuff. Um, the, the creation of a habit is difficult, which is why there are so many books about habit creation, that um, it goes against the grain because humans are essentially... I wouldn't say design, but the way we work is we look for the easiest path. Mm -hmm. And the easiest path when it's snowing outside is not to go for a run. It's to sit on your couch and sit by the fire and watch some TV. So habit creation basically takes doing the same thing a certain number of times a day. And so what what people suggest doing is finding that cue that will say now is the time for the habit to kick in. Might be a certain hour of the day. I talked about not using your phone during dinner. Dinner would be the cue there. And there needs to be something in the external environment, whether it's a time of day or some something, an alarm that says now's the time the habit kicks in. And then you pair that habit. In, in the beginning, it's going to be hard to do with something you really like, hopefully that's not hugely destructive. So for, for some people, that might mean exercising and the way you reward yourself for actually fulfilling that uh, that task or duty that you've set for yourself is you you know eat half a chocolate bar or whatever. It seems kind of counterintuitive but by pairing that habit creation with a reward in the beginning it makes the habit stick a little bit better and then over time it becomes a habit in and of itself you don't need the reward anymore Hmm. it's sort of self-reinforcing but it's hard i'm not going to say it's easy to do that there are lots of great books about this there's uh there's the power of habit by charles duig atomic habits yeah atomic habits by james clear on the shelf there Hmm. um there are a lot of books about it because it's it's hard and we all need help with it uh, so I have uh, I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. Do you have one in mind? I do. Um, donors choose. 
is the one that I'll plug. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is a, a phenomenal group of people who work with public schools and public school teachers in particular who are trying to to do various things with the students they're teaching but don't have the funds to do. It might be building a model of some ship or doing some activity, an art activity, a history activity, whatever it may be that requires a little bit of funding and public schools are underfunded. So they'll post these tasks that they want to do with their kids online and you can fund them. It's like crowdfunding for for public school teachers who are trying to do some fantastic activity with their students. Um, one of the most requested things actually is iPads. So a lot of uh, schools think they need iPads. I'm not sure I agree with that, obviously, based on what I've written. But a lot of the requests are just for basic art supplies and things like that. And uh, it's a huge, huge organization now. It's a massive nonprofit that's been very successful, does an incredible amount of good. And uh, I I can't speak highly enough about them. I've done some work with them. That's wonderful. What if you made iPads that had a little a little rubber hammer that booped yeah. the kid on on the head? Is that a way of reinventing that bat? Yeah, that right. After, after five that. minutes of use, you get bopped on the head. Yeah, that's not bad. I like that. <laughs> so I wanted to just because I I haven't had a chance to read your uh, your other book, Drunk Tank Pink, but uh, I want listeners to at least hear about. It. Can you give a little summary about what the book's about? Yeah, it's actually, it leads into irresistible in a sense. So one of the things that I'm very interested in is, well, the thing that drives most of my research is this question of how things in the world around us shape how we think, feel, and behave, often in ways we don't recognize and to an extent we don't recognize. So if you think about um, screens and technology, we all have a sense that those things influence us. And so that's what the second book was about. The first book was more about all the things we don't recognize. So each chapter, there are nine chapters, and each one in Drunk Tank Pink is devoted to a kind of thing around us that shapes us where we don't realize the extent of that. So the first chapter is about names. For example, how your name at birth, the name you're given at birth, shapes your your life, or how if you have a company, the name you choose for that company or organization shapes the future of that organization. So that's the first chapter. Uh, towards the end of the book, I talk about big, large-scale things like color, which is where Drunk Tank Pink comes in. So actually, that Drunk Tank Pink anecdote is about this bright pink color that psychologists used to paint the inside of jail cells in the early 80s. They found that if you put a very aggressive person inside those jail cells for even 15 minutes they came out much calmer Mm. because they were painted pink something about that pink color had that effect and so the book is this attempt to understand all these things that that shift us on our path through life that we don't recognize are there and then when i finished writing that book i was like well those are a lot of little things that amount to something big what's the single biggest thing today and that's where tech came in and Mm. why i wrote the next book it is. Uh, it's. It's quite a uh, choppy sea of chaos that we're that <laughs> we're <laughs> trying to stay afloat in. I agree. There's just the the endless number of uh, variables yeah. and influences in our life. It is endlessly fascinating to me. So I hope my listeners uh, check out both Drunk Tank Pink, which I'm going to do now, Thank and you. Irresistible, which is just absolutely uh, not just a fantastic book, but very, very, very important. So. I encourage all of you to check those out. Thank you, Adam Alter, for joining me today. Thanks, Shane. I appreciate it. This was fun. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, we're going to be talking about flies. We're going to be talking about genes. It's a complicated episode with Nicole Green and Kyla Lemke. I might release a bonus episode next week as well. I, I had a hard time uh, following some of the stuff. I did the best that I could. Still came out pretty well, but it is, uh, is complicated. Some of the, the, the episodes that are a little more complicated and a little above my uh, my knowledge base or whatever, is it's uh, a little difficult for me to follow along. So maybe I'll just throw in a bonus episode as well in case some of you also have a hard time following along because i don't want science to be frustrating for any some of you are out there you know more about these various subjects than i do so you're going to enjoy it just fine others that are are like me are going to be like what in the world are we even talking about right now (laughs) and uh totally fine and understandable so i'll probably release a bonus episode as well as a good episode just complicated that's all 
but make sure and check out my documentary, Psychonautics, Comics Exploration of Psychedelics. Make sure and check out my stand-up science schedule, ShaneMossMAUSS.com. And think about going to Stitcher Premium, getting ad-free content, and you can go and get my whole backlog going back all the way to the beginning. They have the exclusive rights to all of my content older than six months old. So, it's the only way to get the old content, and it's the only way to go ad-free. I have been searching for a solution to, uh, you know, the, uh, the pesky ads in the middle of things. They probably throw you guys off. They certainly throw me off whenever, whenever someone doesn't have the premium account and they're listening to their Pandora or whatever, and all of a sudden I'm listening to an ad. I'm just so not used to listening to ads because I always go the premium route. It's my little way of spoiling myself a little bit, and it's pretty inexpensive too. And so it's like jarring for me to now hear, uh, hear an ad. So if you're like me and you want to do the ad-free route, it's the, it's the way we're going. You still, the artists need to get paid somehow. If you want ad free, you got to go the subscription route. So get Stitcher Premium today. Check out ad free content. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Don't forget, Starburns offer code with the Stitcher promo. Thank you, editor Jimmy Martin, for making the Here We Are podcast sound fantastic. And thank you for the outro music by Plunkett. I can't even bear to look in your eyes. It's like some existential writing on a bathroom stall. It's like coming short of the bar.